Hey everybody, we're back. It is episode 7, book to show, chat time. And there's a lot to talk about. Broken Man saw the return of several favorite secondary characters, two who had just been missing for a while. Bronn, who hadn't been seen since last season, and the Blackfish, who hadn't been seen since the Red Wedding. That's quite a while, though. He had been mentioned, so we knew he was coming. Same with Bronn, we figured he had to be back eventually. And of course, Sandor Clegane. That's the biggest one, but not really a surprise to us book readers who have mostly long held the belief that he's the gravedigger on the quiet isle that Brienne encounters. It's interesting that after several episodes filled with new material, plot lines well past their respective book arcs, we're going back a bit to a feast for crows mostly, but also a dance of dragons somewhat, to some things we're mostly very familiar with. Though it's doing well in general, this episode seems to be a bit less popular with book readers, and I think that's a big part of why. All season long, we've been treated to new things. And this is... A lot of this was not new. Not that many surprises for us. And this season has been full of surprises, so maybe this was part of why it didn't hit as hard for us. But... That said, the episode did not lack for awesome moments. I was super excited to see Sandor, even though we saw it coming. Liana Mormont was incredible, and we don't really get that from her in the books. We just get a letter. And the shots of Riveron and Bear Island's castles were beautiful, really. Those were just awesome. I almost wish we got more of that. And, of course, it was great to see Ian McShane, even though we didn't get the speeches, either of the speeches we were hoping for. The speech we got was pretty good, but it wasn't as good as the ones in the books. I think I think that will find universal agreement, that statement. The situation in King's Landing is also getting to be a boiling point, and Bravos apparently still has some surprises for us, too. So it wasn't all, you know, ground that we've covered before. So, all in all, I still really like the episode, and it sets up what's going to very likely be a big final three episodes, and I'm excited to talk about it. So, welcome back. Hey, Lady Gwyn, good to have you here with me again. Yeah, hi. Good to be back with you. Right on. It's just the two of us today, no Ashea or Yoke Boy. You know, it's it's not always easy to get these things out with everybody participating every week. It's hard to do that, but we keep trucking away with what we have, and I think this is going to be another great review, if I do say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, we do have some strong guesses, but the fact is we don't know exactly where the show is going with a lot of these plots, and that's one thing we're going to do today is we're going to try to manage our expectations. And it's hard, in other words, it's hard to not fill in the gaps with what the show hasn't told us with what we know from the books. And this this episode is a lot of that going on. There's some confusion about what the Brotherhood is doing. Why are they so murderous? And it's easy for us to consider the books to fill that to fill in what we don't know. But that might be wrong. We might not should be going that direction. But it could just be that the show is being a little sloppy. It's but either is possible, and right now it's hard to say. So we'll break that down. Lady Gwen, what did you think was the biggest thing that you noticed from this episode? Well, um, first of all, the absence of Lady Stoneheart really looms large in this episode. Um, we're seeing how important her pre- her presence is to several of those storylines from Feast that the show is taking up here. Uh, so... There was that, and we'll try to break that down, um, where they covered over for that lack and where maybe they could have done a little bit of a better job. Uh, another thing I did notice is the theme of the brothers and sisters, which, you know, we've seen, you've got Jamie and Cersei and Marjorie and Loras, but here I really, it really struck me, John and Sansa are seeking help. Yara and Theon are seeking 
help or, you know, they're going to try to ally with Danny, um, which also reminded me of uh, Danny and Viserys um, from early on. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was just a little theme I noticed. I, I think it's kind of cool how they're all sort of funneling into those those pairs. Yeah. And a more obvious theme, of course, is the title of the episode, Broken Man. And of course, Sandor and Theon are both somewhat broken men who have, we're seeing them leave that state of being broken men and kind of returning to what they were, maybe with new energy, new motivations. Uh, the Brotherhood Without Banners is sort of a group of broken men off, uh, you know, loosely, loosely speaking there. And of course, we're going to get into more detail on that. Ed Muir is, seems to be a broken man. In a sense, he's just, you know, captive of the phrase, which that can't be any fun. So there's a lot of that going on. I think that basically covers the the overall view of it. There's probably a few other minor uh, minor bits in there. One other thing before we get into the first plot line. A couple people, we, we always read comments on YouTube. We read your emails. We read Twitter and Facebook messages. We don't always respond because it would take away, it takes a lot of time. I've said that before. That's still true. A lot of great emails this time, as always. And one thing I saw recently is we always appreciate constructive criticism. Sometimes people's criticism is a little over, over the top, but it's still the seed of it. There's still something valuable to be gained out of it. So we try to take even the most complainy comments. Uh, we try to see the constructive criticism within that. And one thing we've seen lately is that, hey, you guys want to hear a little bit more of Radio Estros opinions that maybe uh, maybe I'm talking too much. And I, I, I can see that. I think that might be true. I, I definitely try to keep this show moving a lot, and sometimes maybe we move past some things. Unfortunately, no Yoke Boy today, so it's going to be hard to hear from him today. But, you know, we do listen, and we'll try to take that into account, and we'll try to get more of different people's opinions in there, and so forth. So that's a very good, very good uh, thing to hear, and I appreciate the feedback. All right. Let's talk about the first scene. It's kind of funny to see Sandor, after not seeing him for so long, he takes up quite a lot of this episode. And this is a big highlight for the episode. And it was very rare. I wish we could have... I'm not sure that we could have figured it out without rewatching the whole series. Maybe someone's recorded it somewhere. But it's pretty rare that there's a sequence, a scene rather, before the title sequence. And that happened this time, of course... The obvious reason for that is they didn't want Rory McCann's name to be in there. That would spoil, the, that would give away the surprise before it even hit there. And I actually thought Ian McShane's presence helped the surprise too, because people were like, whoa, look, it's Al Swearingen, it's Ian McShane. This is a great actor, and it kind of is a distraction before the real sneaky thing comes, which is Sandor. But again, it wasn't sneaky to us book readers. We knew that Gravedigger was Sandor. It was, it was one of those things that's like, Maybe not quite R plus L equals J. It's one of those things that's not confirmed, but really, really, really we're just so sure of it. It's like one of those 99% things. But it's nice to have confirmed. What are some other things that, that you got out of this scene, Lady Gwen? I just loved the scene itself. It was so beautiful. The Icelandic scenes really stand out to me. The scenery is beautiful. It was gorgeous camera work and the music. Um... Oh, that was in Iceland, that scene? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't look yeah. like Iceland. People think of snow and ice and all that, and right. it's very green. So that's cool. Iceland is actually very green. Greenland is very icy. <laughs> 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 yeah, and there was a lot of, as much as this scene missed some things that we maybe wanted it to have, it did have a couple of clever nods here and there and some things that may have been referenced to other things. I thought of when, when Ray apparently is Al Swearingen, Ian McShane's name. He said, I thought you were dead. Then you coughed. 
That reminded me of Patchface, because that's that's what happens with him. Is they grab the dead body, and he co- sits up and coughs, and it scares <laughs> the guy who did it. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's certainly what I thought of. Right. Um, yeah. There's another one, too, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, Sandra says to Ray, if, if there are gods, why haven't they punished me? And that made me think of Arya in A Storm of Swords uh, after the Hound killed Lord Beric, thinking if there were gods... Why didn't Lord Beric win? She knew the Hound was guilty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a moment of uh, philosophical moment there for Arya, realizing and it's <laughs> the same moment some other characters have had. It even comes up in this latest T-Wow chapter. I, I shan't, shan't say more than that for people wanting to avoid spoilers, but this concept of, of are the gods real comes up, and that's a really interesting. made me think of that too. But also Sandor himself is wondering why he hasn't been punished. And Rey telling him, well, maybe you have been punished. And that also echoes the same scene that you just quoted from Storm of Swords. After Beric loses, Arya screams, you go to hell, hound. You go to hell, hound. You go to hell, comma, hound. She screamed at Sandor Clegane in helpless, empty-handed rage. You just go to hell. And as Beric comes back to life, he says, he has, said a voice scarce stronger than a whisper. Because he's been burned and his, you know, it's, it's, which is the worst thing he, that can happen to Sandor because it brings back his childhood trauma. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. They did, there, there is a lot of book parallel here, even though they missed some of the things that we thought were more obvious for them to hit. Uh, Lady Gwen, you had, um, there's a couple of good comments from listeners and watchers here that we should address here. Yeah, uh, we had a question on Facebook from a listener called Phil Ina regarding uh, the Brotherhood and their motivations. And she wanted to know uh, why, you know, the question on everyone's mind, why did they act that way? Well, basically, I think the show has merged the storyline of the Brotherhood with the broken men who were roaming the Riverlands during A Feast for Crows. Um it's actually hinted in the books when the Brotherhood are rumored to have taken part in the rape of salt pans because of the association of Rorge in the Hound's Helmet. And then there's a circumstantial connection between Sander and Beric and the Brotherhood. And you see a couple characters sort of blaming the Brotherhood for, for that event. But book Brotherhood weren't killing common women and children. Late in Feast, they were still being sheltered by small folk offering them protection not by extortion, which seemed to be the implication in this scene. Um, so they're, you know, they're helping orphans and seem to be still supported by the people. Uh, the Lady Stoneheart Band have certainly lost their way under her leadership, and they've become this revenge-driven gang targeting Freys and Lannisters, and pretty much anyone is guilty by association if you have an association with them. But they seem like they're still careful to note that Brienne and her companions, for instance, served Lannisters and had killed for them and therefore deserved their fate or the fate that they had in mind for them. So it's hard to imagine the Brotherhood in the books slaughtering an entire village for no reason. Brienne, Pod, and Hyle were even given a sort of a trial, maybe not a fair one, but they were given a trial or a judgment. Septon Maribald, on the other hand, was allowed to go free. It's... Uh, Thoros says to Brienne, the Septon was set free to go on his way. There was no harm in him. So so there's that. Um, and by the way, the same Facebook listener wanted to know about the leader of the, the trio of Brotherhood members in the show. Was he Lem Lemoncloak? And it just so happens that right when she was sending us that message, 
uh, someone tagged us in a tweet to the actor who's Icelandic and whose name is Johannes Hauker Johannesson, uh, because I've written about Lem. I may be one of the few people in the fandom that has a lengthy essay on Lem Lemming. I'm not aware of any others. <laughs> so I did Google it and, you know, that was the only thing that came up. So he replied that his character is indeed Lem Lemon Cloak and also said that he's read my essay. So That's awesome. That was cool because he's doing his research. Yeah. I, I don't know how he was maybe dragging the... Um, Richard Lonmouth into his portrayal <laughs> of his character. But probably not. But anyways, in, in spite of, you know, what's Lem's really rage-filled by the end of Feast for Crows, I, I still don't see him in the books killing innocent women and children. I don't either. I agree with that. I think that it's, it's a bit of, like you said, it's kind of the combining the broken men with the Brotherhood, which in the books are two distinct groups. Not maybe as distinct as they come off it's very it's clear once you do research and, and think about it a lot and even i was a little confused on the difference at some point and i think that's an interesting dichotomy here maybe the show has simplified it too much and it's possible that it's a little too complicated in the books it's one of those things that makes sense once you have once you figure it out but it's a little bit dense the first time through and piecing it all together. But of course, that's true for a lot of things in A Song of Ice and Fire. This is not beginner level material. <laughs> There's a lot of subtleties and, and difficult clues in there that need to be picked out. So maybe it's a little bit of both. A little bit of the books being really complicated in this stuff and the show being perhaps overly simplistic. But to be fair in the show's defense, we don't exactly know where they're going with this. There may be an explanation that makes sense for why they're so murderous. I can't, we don't have any great guesses that fit really well. We have some guesses. I wouldn't say they're great, though. There's some problems with them all. And maybe so like I said, maybe there'll be some explanation that fits better once we see it. But for now, it seems a little puzzling. We've already heard that the Brotherhood is helping raise the common folk against the phrase. We hear that, not this episode, but the last one through Blackwalder and Lame Lothar when they're speaking to their father about problems in the Riverlands. So how does that fit together? How are they helping fight the phrase if they're killing these villagers for no apparent reason? Is this just a device to get Sandor mad at the Brotherhood again or something like that? If so, that would be a little little simplistic, a little cheap. But I'm going to let them, I'm going to wait and see and try to not judge too much until I see where it's going. But I do agree that it, it looks like it might be a bit awkward. Now... Speaking to the Brotherhood in the books, there is also the potential that since we're seeing past this, maybe in the show, maybe they do get that dark eventually. One of the last things we see of the Brotherhood is, besides their intent on revenge, besides Jamie going off with Brienne as part of some trick that the Brotherhood is pulling to get Jamie to come to them, we also see Lem wearing the Hound's helmet, which is the same helmet associated with these really awful deeds done at salt pans by Rorge and Biter and others. So Lem, Lem doesn't seem to have a problem with the fact that they're going to be associated with that. Thoros has a problem with it. And Thoros is the, probably one of the few in the Brotherhood who still understands what they used to stand for. Here's a great quote from the books. My lady, Thoros said, I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. This is a cave, not a temple. When men must live like rats in the dark beneath the earth, they soon run out of pity, as they do of milk and honey. 
And justice? Can that be found in the caves? Justice, Thoros smiled wanly. I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights and heroes. But some knights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. So that's another possibility that what we've seen in the books hasn't reached the point of what the show, and the show has just jumped forward to the Brotherhood getting darker and darker. Because if they're getting darker, it would make sense that they would continue to get darker. It's still hard to see them slaughtering a village of innocents, though, even with that. So uh, I'm not sure. So like you say, there's the ex there's an explanation missing. And again, that's Stoneheart would have explained that pretty well. Yeah, I, I do think that what's that's what's missing is is this sort of reason for why the Brotherhood turned against the people. Uh, Lady Stoneheart and revenge are what's driven the book Brotherhood off the rails. And you have the broken men who are scarred by the horrors of war. The broken men are a major theme of the Feast for Crows, which is why Septa Maribald's speech is so compelling. You know, it really stands out and, and ties a lot of that action together. Ray's speech maybe had been after the that first encounter with the three on horseback. I think it could have more explicitly connected the dangers of the broken man and actually functioned to advance not only Sandra's arc but explain what came next with the with the attack. Yeah. So as it was, I mean, it, it kind of fell flat for me because I I felt that it reduced it to just a you know men are greedy and violent and. Um, I would have liked to see it maybe handled a little differently, but like you said, it, it could there could be something yet to come that will um, wrap it all up for us. Yeah, so, it might make you know, it at better moment, at least. <laughs> it might, maybe even if it doesn't uh, we, fully we can only it. <laughs> we can only hope. Yeah, so, I mean we're we're left a little bit confused, but you know we'll we'll hang on and see what happens in the next three episodes. Yeah, it seems likely we'll be continuing with this plot line immediately this next episode, especially given episode 9 is seems to be really focused on a battle. We'll be getting into more detail as usual after the credits we'll talk about some trailer stuff. There's it's it, the trailer situation is actually more interesting in some ways because all the preseason trailers if you know if you go back and look at those, well, some of the scenes haven't happened yet and it's really narrowing down when they can possibly happen. So I do think that we do at least know that there's going to be at least a little bit more of Sandor this season, if not a lot more. And him going after the Brotherhood could shed more light on what they're all about. My guess, and again, I said this, I don't love this guess. I'm just trying to figure this out. But it could have something to do with the religious war foreshadowing. A big deal was made about how Rey is a Septon, and it appeared to be a seven-sided building they were making it may have been a little sept they were constructing and it could be that this is a foreshadowing to danny's army coming in with believers in relore believing that she's the the savior that she's the prince that was promised that could be what we're seeing a foreshadowing of is these relorists because the brother that's the one thing the brotherhood made clear on the show is that they're followers of relore the night is dark and full of terrors is a line that lem delivers and these people are followers of the Seven. So maybe that's what we're seeing here is a, the, the foreshadowing of a major religious conflict coming. Obviously, the faith have been a big part of this season with the High Sparrow and everything. And I, I don't know that that's just a short-term thing. I think that might be something that we're seeing for the rest of the show as things really blow up in a lot of places. 
So that's that's one guess I have. And he was hung in the sept, too, in that little sept under construction. Ray was. Hat tip to listener, watching her Lady Storch for that one. I didn't actually catch that it was seven-sided. I went back and looked. It was kind of hard to tell, but I'm pretty sure she's right on that. Also, watching her Rosie Rosie Pudding and Pie writes regarding the horrors of war and how George R. R. Martin really shows us that in Feast. It's one of the main themes of Feast with the broken men and elder brother and all these things. It's, a, it's one of the things that makes Feast a great book, but... At the time, it was harder to tell. It's one of those things that Feast is one of the best books for going through a second and third time because it's real subtle. And if you're like me, you read it back in 2006. And at the time, it was, it was, there was some disappointment with Feast because of the chapters that weren't there. The lack of John and Tyrion and, and Danny and all that made it after waiting for five years for that book. It kind of, some people were thrown off by that. And it took years and years of people coming around on it to realize just how subtle and how much was actually going on in that book and it's in, in the long run it's become one of the favorite books amongst people who are really deep in the fandom like myself i'm not saying it's my favorite but i know a lot of people who would call feast their favorite book and when at the time it came out that's that wasn't there weren't many people saying that back in 2006 it took a while <laughs> Which one is your favorite, Lady Gwen? Do you have a favorite of the five? Um, yes, I was nodding and as you're saying this because Feast is my absolute favorite. Oh, right yes. on, right and, on. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I really get deep into this, uh, the whole Riverlands, and and um, yeah. It has some of the saddest moments. It has the the Broken Man speech is incredible. It's one of the best there is in in all the books. Mm -hmm. And Elder Brother's speech is really really good too. And then there's Aemon's death scene. It's like in all these like sad moments that are just incredible. Um, yeah. And of course, we could go on and on. There's a lot of amazing things about Feast. But that's a good segue to recommending it again on audiobook. If you've read Feast and you're, you know, you don't agree with what we're saying, you're like, I don't know where they're coming from. I thought that book was mediocre. Maybe it's time to, to listen to it again. If you don't have time to reread it, try listening to it on audible.com. Go to History of Westeros, click on the audible.com 30 day free trial. You can get a Feast for Crows on Audible for free along with the trial. And then if you don't want to stay on Audible, you can quit the trial after 30 days and keep that free book so you've committed to nothing. You get all that for free, a free copy of Feast. And hey, you may actually really like it, may inspire you to listen to other audio books, and you may find you really like it. So again, historyofwesteros.com, upper right corner on the front page there, there's a link to sign up for the free trial on Audible. Check out Feast. I think it's really, really worth going through a couple of times, if not more, because it's such a great book. Another comment as we segue away from this plotline to King's Landing. And Watchator Ray Muratori points out maybe a bit of Clegane Bowl foreshadowing, which is, of course, the possibility that it's Sandor who defeats this Gregor Clegane undead version, Franken Gregor, Unkyburn, or Ungregor, Kyborg, all the different nicknames he's inspired, Robert Strong. He really does have a lot of names for someone who doesn't talk, doesn't he? So the line is when Sandor is described saying who, you know, who took him down. And he says, How many men did it take to take you down? Just one. You know, must have been some kind of monster. Hmm. Well, of course, the way that's worded, it sounds like the monster takes down Sandor. But <laughs> I still see where he's coming from there. And I definitely think that's a possibility. Clegane Bowl could absolutely happen. What do you think, do you, Lady Gwen? Do you think Club Glamball is going to happen, or do you think he's going to go somewhere else, like maybe North? Because he reunite with Sansa, could he be the one to put down Ramsay? 
Like a like oh. a dog, you know, him being the dog that puts down Ramsey, that'd yes. be pretty cool. Uh I would love to see that. Couldn't rule it out altogether, but I think that Sander definitely has unfinished business with his brother. Yeah. And not sure how it'll turn out. Um kind of cringe about that, you know, some kind of monster. Yeah. Foreshadow potential foreshadowing. Because <laughs> uh, I'm not convinced it will turn out really well for him. But I think it'll be heroic. I also happen to think he has uh, some unfinished business with Sansa and Arya. So exactly, yeah. So it's it's we'll where well, it'd be hard for him to finish all that unfinished business. So it's a matter of <laughs> right. well, Sandor, you're going to have to uh, pick and choose which ones you do. In the books, it's it's one of the things that speaks against Clegane Bull is. Sandor doesn't seem to be nearly as recovered as he does here in the show. In the show, he's lifting trees by himself, and he's chopping wood relentlessly. He seems quite healthy. He has a limp, but other than that, he seems fine. In the books, there's some doubt that he's fully recovered. It's hard to tell. You know, he's got his cowl. He's got his limp. So it's more of a th- it's more of what people expect based on how severe his injuries were. It's not really something that anyone actually knows, to be sure. There's also some thinking that maybe... There's some magic going on there with Elder Brother. Maybe he had healing hand. Maybe there's some actual magic happening that he's not even aware of. It's, there's not much, there's no real evidence for it, but the talk is, there's, you know, stories in, in the history of Westeros about people that had that. Septon Mermison, I believe it was, was a figure from history who supposedly had the healing hands. And of course, over the hi- telephone game of history, Somebody who's just really good at healing could be said to have powers. And so it doesn't have to be magic. But eh, there's a tiny chance that, you know, that's what's happening in the books. I wouldn't I wouldn't bank on it by any means. But I feel it's worthy to throw out there as an idea. So let us talk about King's Landing. There's a lot of different things happening at King's Landing and a lot of setup and a lot of things to unpack and a lot of... A lot of things that that are going on with the High Sparrow that I think have played out the way we expected. And if we can follow the patterns that have gotten us to this point, I think we can make a few predictions. So starting with Marjorie and the High Sparrow. Now, we were pretty sure she was playing a game, but she was playing along in order to get out of her predicament. And, you know, get out of the High Sparrow's clutches. But she still has to balance Loris' life against all this. So she can't, you know, she has to be sneaky. I wonder, though, how much the High Sparrow knows. He's clever enough to realize that other things are happening behind the scenes. That, And it, it seems pretty clear that he definitely sniffed out the plan to stop her walk of shame. He certainly was on top of that situation. So I, I'm really wondering what's going on with this Olena situation. He makes this veiled threat to Marjorie about Olena that's blatantly obvious. And Marjorie immediately responds. So did she tip her hand a bit by suggesting that Olena should leave is the from the highest bearer's perspective he makes this threat all of a sudden Olena leaves or is getting ready to leave so that it was that a mistake on Marjorie's part or was that just exactly what the high sparrow wanted he says well I threaten Mar- I threaten her Marjorie suggests Olena leaves and then she's this is a you know if you look at it, the Game of Thrones that's a piece removed from the board she doesn't have to kill her her influence is out of King's Landing now high sparrow gets what he wants quite possibly Lady Gwyn, what do you think of that? Do you think maybe that's what's happening? Yeah, I get the feeling in that scene that he was aware, perhaps not fully convinced by her game, and that he's still playing her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I would think that it's 
likely that he's he's calculating a play to get Elena. He perceives he sees that she's a threat, that her army is a threat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, get rid of her by offering her this not so subtle threat. Yeah. I mean she stood at the head of that army. We we saw how she was using her fan to direct give orders. She was basically in charge of that whole thing. So yeah. and I think the High Sparrow realized that. Like, why else would the... Yeah, he didn't miss that. Yeah, so it just goes <laughs> to show he is very clever. I think a lot of people are under- underestimating him, not just characters in the in the show and books, but maybe some of us watchers and listeners and, and fans as well. He just keeps coming out ahead. I think he's probably going to get his comeuppance at some point, but he just they keep underestimating him, Mar- especially Olena and Cersei. And I think Cersei's starting to realize that Olena maybe hasn't completely come around on that. She still was just angry and upset and frustrated. and But she came around a bit, I think, when she realized that Marjorie is playing an inside game, that she's doing a double agent sort of thing. And that probably calmed her down a bit, realizing that her granddaughter is still, you know, is, is, is doing the right thing. She's making moves. She's, she's still a Tyrell at heart. So I think that's pretty cool. The marriage bed. This is really interesting. I think Marjorie's playing us playing this really smartly. She's basically played it so that the High Sparrow has to give her permission to sleep with Tommen again. Ah, uh, she never had desire for him in the first place. Let's be honest. He's. I mean, she she has desire for the throne, for the crown, for the power of being a queen. She made that very clear in earlier seasons, and she's already made it clear as well that. She, the sex part doesn't matter her to her that much in terms of it's uncomfortable for her. Or she hates it. Look what she was willing to do with Renly. She was talking about having Loras there participate. That wasn't about her having fun. She wasn't like, well, this will make, let's make this fun for me. She was trying to make it palatable to Renly because she knew how important it was to have an heir. So clearly, this is in stark contrast to that or in Tyrell contrast to that. So she's playing a game here and it's really interesting. She's also showing... The High Sparrow, in a way, she's trying to play along. She's saying, look, well, this is what a, a lady of the faith would do. She wouldn't go rushing back to the marriage bed. She wouldn't be all about sex and all this. So she's kind of making it seem that the High Sparrow is giving her permission. She's like showing him that he has control. Lady Gwen, what do you think about the situation? Do you agree with what I'm saying there? Or do you have any different thoughts on that? No, I think I, I tend to agree with that. She definitely gave him the opportunity to, you know, appear to dominate the the direction of the conversation, by, you know, giving her instruction, and she was very submissive about the whole thing. So definitely, and everything you said, uh, we, we know all this stuff about Marjorie from the past, so yeah. she's, she's not playing him straight, mm-hmm. that's for sure. She's very ambitious, and she is, we've seen that she's willing to do things she doesn't like to get power. She's willing to make sacrifices and do things that she doesn't like in order to that greater goal, that which is the ambition, which is really important to her. But she has to set her side some of her ambition because as much as that's important to her, well, Loras is still in danger. Loras is still being held in captivity, and that's still something that the High Sparrow has, you know, that's something that he has in his, his camp. He has that major piece of leverage over them still. So I, I have to think that Whatever Marjorie's game is, whatever her sub-goals are amongst the main goal of getting rid of this High Sparrow's influence, I think that would be her, the, 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 the bottom line, most important thing. But 
if that's not entirely possible, she has to at least get out of his clutches somewhat. You know, right now she's got a SEPTA following her around. It's pretty clear who's in charge of King's Landing right now. The High Sparrow is kind of running things in a sense. And obviously he can't just start giving orders like he's the king. But if you were to say who's the most powerful person in King's Landing right now, I'd have to say the High Sparrow. Would you agree with that? I would. Yeah. He he's definitely seems to be calling the shots. And, um, you know, one thing I was actually just just thought of this you, because you mentioned her having, you know, Septa following her around, mm-hmm. or Septa Unella specifically. Presumably, if she was going back to the marriage bed with Tommen, maybe Unella might have to leave the room finally. Ah, yeah, that's a great so, idea. Yeah, you're right. She, she could have an opportunity to finally speak to Tommen. Mm-hmm. And now she's in this kind of sanctioned, you know, situation. The High Sparrow has commanded her to do this, so... You know, Yunella has to leave, and maybe she can clue him in what's going on. Finally. And we talked last episode about the possibility that maybe what Marjorie's doing is she's converting to the faith to get out of this problem. And, you know, Tommen is collateral damage because he comes over to the faith, but she has a lot of confidence in herself to win him back over to her side through, well, well, she's a hot woman. She <laughs> this is a, And this is a teenage kid, right? She can... She thinks she could probably charm him into, you know, away from the High Sparrow. And I got to say, she's, that's not a bad plan, you know, and it may be her only plan. And it, it's a good chance of working, you know, this is Natalie Dormer we're talking about. So I think that could work. And it makes sense as her, as her, uh, as her plan. And it may work. But as long as Loras is a captive, it's still, there's still that problem. She can't do anything really overt or make a big move as long as that's the problem. And that came up with Olena pointing out that what they want is Loras to renounce his titles. And that obviously is not going to fly. The Tyrells do not want that happening. So I wonder if this is part of his leverage. He's not going to really make that happen. He wants, if he wants to rule through the throne it might not work to do to make too much of an enemy of the tyrells as long as he has this leverage he can control them but if he goes through with loris forcing loris to you know to uh lose his titles to renounce his title and his his heir uh, his uh lands and all that well uh, yeah that's just a tough sell that might be just something he's holding on to and i wonder about loris there's something that doesn't quite add up to me um, if he just wants it to end, if that's his, if that's truly what he wants, I wonder if why maybe he's just willing to renounce these titles. I wonder why that hasn't happened. I guess it's just, yeah, I don't know. He doesn't need his sister or his grandmother's permission to do that. He can just say, yes, I forgive me. I renounce my titles. Let me go. But there may be some behind the scenes reason that we don't know about for why that is the case. So there is more here at King's Landing. Let's go on to the Queen of Thorns and Cersei, where Queen of Thorns just really lets her have it. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that a great scene? Yeah. Are you the just... worst person I've ever known? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> that was just great. <laughs> uh, truly vile. The truly vile standout. She's uh, continuing her trend of fantastic takedowns. Might have been the best yet. She <laughs> calls it like it is. It's all Cersei's fault. So, but what was interesting is that she points out how isolated Cersei is and the danger she faces. She's got no friends. She's got no army. She sent the army off to the Riverlands. Uh, really no supporters. It really does seem like 
uh, brought, well, Gregor Clegane is her only protection. Yep. So is that going to be enough? The one other thing she has is the little birds. Um, that's yeah. something. And Kyburn, we have yet to we saw that little scene. We have yet to see that matter in a in a, any sort of tangible way yet this season. Surely it will. Yeah, I've got some thoughts on that in the trailer discussion as well. So we'll save some of that for then. And but yeah, uh, Kevin and Olena have both sarcastically remarked about how the mountain like unless you have that thing kill everyone, you know. <laughs> there's a couple of even Jamie says send the mountain into the the to the sept and just have him kill everyone. Even Cersei thinks, well, that's too much. There's hundreds of sparrows in there. Even the mountain can't kill all of them. We might see him try. <laughs> I don't know. That would be kind of fun just to see. It's like that old story that that's gone around for a while. Like if you had to fight, if you were forced to fight a bunch of five year olds, how many five year olds could you beat? You know, if they were all fighting you at once, how many five year olds could yeah. you defeat? You know, <laughs> that's what I think of when I think of sparrows fighting the mountain. They're the five-year-olds and he's the fully formed adult human. <laughs> that's a similar sort of concept. So, like I said, more of that. We'll discuss more of that in the trailers discussion when we get to that at the end. For now, let us move on a bit to the north. Let's go talk about the north where there are other walking dead going on but we don't see any of them this season we do i mean this episode but we do hear them talked about john and sansa and davos okay so this scene of being at stannis's former camp what might that be setting up <laughs> something we talked about Ooh. before yeah we did didn't we so another hat tip to lady storch who mentioned to us a few weeks ago that uh, after we talked about how would davos find out about shireen's fate this could be setting up exactly what she suggested, which was that Davos could find Shireen's little stag figure that he carved and, you know, next to a pile of ashes and then the cat's out of the bag. Things will look pretty bleak for the yeah. Davos-Mel, the brief alliance of Davos and Melisandre. They're letting that lie for now because we haven't even seen Melisandre said she'd go wherever John went, but she hasn't really, she hasn't played a role in these scenes at all uh, the last few episodes. She's just, a, apparently she's there. But she's not doing anything yet. And it makes sense for them to not bring her into the hall with, while they're trying to recruit northerners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, we have this red priestess with us. Right. The wildlings are bad. Yeah. Enough. Like, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> doesn't work. Of course, the books bring that up. Was John's like, don't bring Melisandre to the mountain clans. <laughs> <laughs> and Stannis is like, yeah, she's staying here. Don't worry about that. So anyway. But Bear Island looked amazing, didn't it? Yeah, it was it was so beautiful. Um I it was breathtaking, really, wasn't it? Yeah, like where um, is that in real life? Is that another Iceland shot or I, I wish it I don't know. That I have that I've yet to figure out. It kinda looked vaguely Japanese to me. Huh, sort of a, yeah, you know, yeah. But I, I I'm not sure that's not what it really yeah, was. Yeah, I don't think but, they've done any shooting in Japan, yeah. Um <laughs> could have been we'll have to look it up and see where it was. Yeah, it was if anyone really knows, stunning. let us know. Tell us. Yes. We'll give you credits. Um, but I have to say that my headcanon is like this kind of small, dark, long haul, you know, like a Vikingish kind of thing. Um, it, you know, Lynesse Hightower was so unhappy there. <laughs> I, I, I'd be pretty happy if I were her and that was the place. So, <laughs> so it's a little different from the books, but it was it was cool. Also, in this scene... We notice something uh, that most likely hiding under John's cloak. Yeah, John doesn't bring up. He me he mentions that I knew your grandfather or your great uncle G or Mormon. I don't. I, I guess that's his 
her grandfather, her great uncle. I'm not even sure what the relation is, but he doesn't bring up his sword. Good thing. They wouldn't necessarily recognize it because it's got a different hilt. You know, it's got the, the wolf hilt instead of the bear, but it wouldn't have been wise for him to discuss the sword too much. <laughs> like, hey, so where did you get that Valyrian steel sword? That's not ice. That's not a Stark sword. Where, where did like, oh yeah, never mind. Don't worry about that. Yeah, that's pretty funny. And it seems like Ghost would have been nice to have in there to add some weight to the whole we're Starks argument. But that's, the, I think, again, a victim of CGI being really expensive. <laughs> yeah. So, and little Liana, oh man, we, I wonder if this is what we're getting since we didn't, we're, we're probably not going to get little Willa, who gives the amazing Stark loyalty speech in right. the Manderley scene, the, the, the North Remembers chapter, which, by the way, is fan voted on Tower of the Hand, the most popular chapter, period, in all the books. So it's cool that they threw her in there. I'm not, I don't think I'm out of line by saying that scene. We all thought that was awesome. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I think it was, it was really good. Um, I did think it was interesting that in the end it was Davos, the conciliator that she listened to. (laughs) Um, She wasn't fully, in spite of her awesome speech about King in the North and the Starks, she wasn't fully convinced that she wanted to, you know, continue fighting with them. Even Rickon, who presumably is Rob's heir, if you know, so I guess he would be the king in the north. Yeah, that him being a hostage wasn't fully convincing. It just came down to zombies. Yeah, just zombies. So, so it's interesting. I wonder <laughs> if this is being set up a little bit. Uh, it's funny that you call him Davos the Conciliator because what we just talked about, if he finds out, if he happens to find out what happened to Shireen, he may be divisive. <laughs> he may be like, I don't want yes. Melisandre around anymore. Get her the hell out of here. Yeah, that the trend could end, Yeah, right? so he may be Davos the divisive. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have a pretty good reason, though. <laughs> yeah, right. So we hear that, that Mage is dead in the show, which is not the case in the books, right? Right. No, in the books, Mage is still very much well. It's Daisy. It's Daisy who's killed in the books. Daisy is the one that was killed at the Red Wedding. Um, we we assume that Mage is still alive and off page, where when she was sent on a secret mission by Rob, um, along with uh, Galbert Glover, by the way. Uh, there's good reason to believe that she's been communicating with her daughters in the books so we're pretty confident she's still alive uh alisanne one of the other daughters is with fighting with stannis and lyanna's at bear island like she is here she the, the major difference is that she isn't the lady of bear island so so it's not really quite clear who like i said who she meant is the king in the north when she wrote that letter to stannis um the, in the books the gnc theorizes that she's referring to john mm that she had received a message from her mother about Rob's will, which is all, you know, there's a chain of of communication where that's entirely possible. Yeah. So um, here, not really sure what, you know, who she thinks is the king in the north whose name is Stark, but maybe we'll, we'll find out that she has a specific idea about that in a future episode. Yeah, and she is there. I, I didn't catch yep. it the first time I saw it, but she's with the army. She's traveling with the army, which, by the way, makes me wonder if we weren't wrong about Sweet Robin. Maybe Sweet Robin will be with the Vale army. Oh, imagine all these little kids showing up at that big battle. Yeah, wouldn't that be something? (laughs) Wow. Well, they're going to have to learn sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like Liliana's ready for it. I guess uh, 
Sweet Robin, you know, he likes throwing people out the moon door, so he's probably it's probably not going to traumatize him. It may give him may give him yeah. the wrong ideas. He may become bloodier. He's like, you know, that was sweet. Like I like that. Yeah. More of that. We want more battles like that. Like, oh damn, little kid. Jeez. The new Ramsey. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Ram Robin? Uh, sweet sweet Ramsey? No. <laughs> so then we get I guess what they're trying to show is that not everyone is willing to support the Starks. Not everyone is willing to face the Boltons. In fact, that's one of the main reasons given in this scene why Glover, Robert Glover, won't doesn't want to support the Starks is he's one of the many reasons he gives is he's I could be flayed just talking to you. Yes. And this uh, this this scene is a little odd. Uh, it it was upsetting to some people and I'm I'm kind of with with that in a bit, but to be fair, it was cut off. Like we come into the conversation partway through. We the first thing we hear is I've heard enough. So who knows what he said before that, but at the mm. same time it still feels like a major deviation in a way that's a little disappointing. Um, Lady Gwen, tell us about that. Yeah, it, it was almost completely deviated from Robert Glover's book character. Um, in the books, of course, the Ironborn did take Deepwood Ma and capture Robert's wife and children. But I think the similarities ended there. It was Stannis who won it back, not Robert himself with the aid yeah. of the Boltons. Uh, of course, he's not the Lord of Deepwood Mott because Galbert Glover, like I mentioned, is still alive mm -hmm. um, with Mage Mormont. And, you know, in A Dance with Dragons, Robert meets with Davos um, and is very clear in his support for the Starks. Mm. And his the North Rivers chapter again. Yes, in that <laughs> chapter, that very, very popular chapter, he absolutely rejects the Boltons and everything they stand for. And, you know, here... He, you know, he's talks about the Boltons helped him get his castle back, and then how Rob went off. You know, he says very strong words about Rob and what he did in the South, and he got himself killed. Well, he seems to have forgotten that the Boltons were <laughs> were partly, mostly responsible yes. for Rob being killed, and by extension, his brother. So yeah. that, that rung a little bit strange to us here. It was a little strange. I kind of see where he's coming from. I'm with you. I'm like in the middle on this one because it's also like, well, he also makes the point of Rob screwing everything up by going off with Talisa. And he's like, well, even if it wasn't for the Red Wedding, well, Rob screwed everything up anyway. Like that mm. maybe the Red Wedding was, the Red Wedding was dirty and, and evil, but... Rob had lost the war before that point anyway. I think maybe that's his argument, and it's not a bad point to make. To me, the, it's just, it's always disappointing when a, sh a character who in the book has this awesome, like, position of loyalty, of, like, fortitude, like Manderley and Glover do in that chapter, and to see that turned around. It maybe makes sense for the show to do it, but that doesn't mean it's not disappointing from, like, a gut reaction type of scenario. Like, man, Glover was such a loyalist in the books, and now he's just, like, nah. Like, he was emotional about it. He had gave pretty strong reasons, but still... It's disappointing because we want Glover to be the Glover from the books. That's rah-rah Stark. You know, that's what we want. And eh, we didn't get it. So that is a bit disappointing, even though it kind of fits. And it makes sense that they just wouldn't have all these houses just line up to support the Starks. They should have some adversity here. They need to have a reason for Sansa to realize she has to bring Littlefinger's army into the game. So, uh, you know, it's okay. I guess. And, and also, to be fair, it was Roos that betrayed Rob. 
and not Ramsey. Maybe that's what Glover's thinking. He's like, well, Roos is dead. And Ramsey <laughs> didn't do the Red Wedding. He wasn't there. You know, he didn't have anything to do with setting it up. I mean, it's not like Ramsey is, you know, a great, you know, well, yeah, I'm going to stick with Ramsey. He's been a good leader. But, you know, I'm not trying really? to say that. <laughs> he killed Roos. So maybe, <laughs> yeah. you know, revenge. I don't know. Yeah, maybe some people <laughs> think that, uh, uh, see that in a different light. You know, if they believe the story that someone else killed him and they don't know, right. you know, well, Ramsey is brutal and evil, but he's tied the North together and he beats Stannis and all these other things. I don't know. It, it, it can see that. It's interesting. It's a, it's a game of perception. Like, what is Robert Glover? Show Robert Glover. What does he actually know? What is what's his information? And because that's what he's basing the decision off of. It's hard for us not to like. It's hard to separate what Robert Glover from the books knows versus Robert Glover in the show. It's really confusing. And it's of course we just tend to lean on our expectations and what we've known for years. I mean, it's it's the show. This this just happened on the show. We've had our Robert Glover in our head for. Five years, you know, <laughs> so it may be, there may be some contradictions. It may be a little sloppy, but it's also just a little unclear. And it's one of those things where I tend to just kind of hand wave and say, yeah, maybe it's sloppy, but maybe it just isn't. Maybe there's some more explanation coming mm-hmm. or, you know, and they got to rush a bit. I don't know. It's, I'm in the middle on this one, I think. So let's keep going though. What, what happens next here, Lady Gwen? Their, their, their efforts to get all these soldiers together. We, we get some kind of a progress yeah. report. Yeah, well, they've been, so they've been rejected by House Glover. And of course, they have their 2,000 wildlings plus uh, House Hornwood, uh, Mason, and Mormont. Mormont's 62. And, uh, <laughs> 62. They actually Very... mention the numbers for the other two houses. Whatever it, they, it adds up to about four hundred. So they're about yeah. twenty four hundred people. They've sent um, ravens to Manderley and I think Kerwin, but no, no response. So you know, maybe all the the North may not remember. <laughs> not all of them, or in the case of the Glovers, they remember the wrong thing. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> Now there's a we got um, some feedback on our confusion about House Mason, which is not in the books. House there's a a, a man named Craig Mason who helped Dan and Dave do with some things in the show or in past seasons. So they kind of gave him an honorary. They kind of snuck him in there for fun as a nod to him and the things he's done. So they made him a Stark loyalist. <laughs> they made his house a Stark loyalist. It's kind of cool. I like that. Maybe we'll see them do some things in the battle upcoming battle. Maybe we'll see their banner. I don't know. I don't know if we've seen their banner. Maybe we'll get a House Mason banner somehow. They'll they'll come up with something clever for that. That's fun. So they're gonna keep it something to keep an eye out for. So Sansa does finally relent. It seems, although I'm it's a it's a little annoying to me. Not in a storytelling perspective, but I'm annoyed at Sansa that she still hasn't told anyone that she's doing this. But you know, I'm not annoyed at her in that I don't understand because she has good reasons to be suspicious. She's suspicious of Davos. Because and she lets John know that you know Davos followed a loser who, you know who had burned you know who did all these burned people and did these awful things and not, you know not Shireen no but they don't know about that yet yet or or at all but it just uh, you know it kind of I'm wondering you know if that's Littlefinger's influence on her and her lack of trust and living with Ramsay and that all that could, that's going to have an effect on somebody but it's still it's like I want things to work and so I want Sansa to be truthful about these things i understand why she's playing her cards close to the chest i think it's makes sense 
from a storytelling perspective. But as a Stark fan, I want her to tell John what's up. I want them to have all the information so they can make a, a good plan. So mixed feelings for me there, but not from a, I'm not complaining about the way this is done. What do you think about this, this, this part, Lady Gwen? Oh, and also tell us about what the letter says. I don't have a really don't have any problem. I think, like you said, it makes storytelling sense for what they're doing. Um, so I, I don't have any issues, and I can I can kind of see where they're where they're going to get to in the end with this storyline, which is mm. more or less where I I think they're going to get to in the books, just by a different road. But we do have um, a redditor called Creepy Pancakes has <laughs> has uh, done some nifty. Um, Stuff with the letter that she sends, you know, Photoshop or, well, I guess whatever they did. They zoomed in. They flipped it over. She, they figured out exactly what the letter says. So it says, um, you, you promised to protect me. Now you have a chance to fulfill your promise. The Knights of the Vale are under your command. Ride north for Winterfell. Lend us your aid and I shall see to it that you are well rewarded. So I think if there was any doubt that clears up the to whom the letter was directed yeah yeah just in case it was maybe she some people thought maybe she wasn't sending a letter to, to Littlefinger now <laughs> some book readers will point out that there really shouldn't be a way for her to send a raven to Littlefinger at this point he's camped south of Moat Kalen. he can't get through Ma unless he's taken Moat Kalen, which goes against what we have told been told even in the show about how difficult it is to take then where is she sending this raven to yeah. We can't send a raven to an army in the field. Armies in the field can send ravens back home to their mm -hmm. to different castles, but you can't. So this is this is a bit of a problem, but it's a small one, and the show has done similar things. So we just have kind of have to accept it and move on. There's really nothing to say. the The wildlings, of course, were easier to convince to join John's army, uh, to join John and Sansa's army. That is, and we understand why. There, are, as Tormund explains, that there are simpler people. And when threatened with the idea of being cowards, that really turned them. And I, I like the line about Tormund, John saying, you know, are they going to come? And John says, we're not clever like you Southerners. If we say we'll do something, we're going to do it. I thought that was a good line. And I agree with it. It's how they've been set. They are, you know, a straightforward, honest kind of people. They're not, they don't have a lot of cunning in their hearts. It's not really part of their society. So... I thought that was cool, and I liked seeing that, and I wonder if it's going to, you know, I wonder how much it's going to matter. It actually makes me want worry for uh, one one. <laughs> He's going to be one of my worries of the week for, not next episode, but for when the battle happens, which is apparently going to be episode nine, if mm -hmm. uh, if we figured that out correctly. So, yep, one one's going to be added to my list there. Um, I'll explain that in greater detail after the, after the credits, but... Yeah, I'm a little worried about him. I'm not really worried about too many other people. Although, as the battle gets closer, we'll discuss that in more detail as well. Real quick, a shout-out to Andreas of House Sophocles, whose member is thrice the size of Tormund's. And just like the wildlings telling things straight, well, I guess that's the truth. So let's move on to the Riverlands. This is another scene that we... At some point this season, we realized we'd be getting it. But prior to this season, and in season four, it looked like the Riverlands would never happen. So this is one of those things where there weren't a lot of surprises for us. Because this is a lot of the stuff is very similar to the books. Maybe a little bit rushed. Some things that weren't there that we would have liked to see. But overall, very similar to the books. Braun instead of Illin Payne. But it was great to see Braun back. He has some good lines. Always good to see Braun. What are your thoughts on Blackfish coming back into the game here? 
Well, I love the I love seeing him again. Uh, I think he's a great actor. And we had lots of similarities to the book exchange between Blackfish and Jamie. Uh, in fact, most of that whole scene was taken directly from the books. So this really was, it should have been a very epic moment because I think that is in the books. Uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, meeting of these two guys. But I have to say that in my opinion, and this is my opinion as a book reader, who loves Feast for Crows. <laughs> um, this scene was kind of gutted by removing the heart of that speech, which I think I mentioned in the last episode. He says to Jamie, lift your eyes and you'll see the dire wolf still flies. And that sort of, you know, gives you this chills where he's he's still loyal to the Starks yeah. in spite of everything that's happened. So his motivation for holding out, which was loyalty to House Stark and protecting Queen Jane, which obviously the show couldn't really do, <laughs> is kind of removed. Um, so my high expectations were disappointed when I heard him say, I was born here and I'm not leaving, which kind of just felt more like an old man refusing to go to a home <laughs> than, a, than a defiant <laughs> rebel. <laughs> so, like, come on, gray fish. <laughs> come on, come on. It's time to go now. Let some other people take care of, you know, it just did. It, it just kind of lacked a feeling of defiance and mm. I didn't find it as compelling as it could have been yeah that's that's a fair complaint i think the the, some things that it made up for by having just the great the great music and scenery the drawbridge lowering and raising were both really really sweet Mm. i really liked both of those moments yeah yes that was great and i liked i actually liked lame lothar blackwalder (laughs) was you know I'm, i'm not super happy with what they did to blackwalder because he's He's actually supposed to be pretty formidable in the books, and it doesn't look mm. like any of the Freys are going to be formidable, except right. for maybe Walder himself a bit, but not in that kind of way. Right. So the Freys are more of a laughing stock, whereas in the books they're they're a mix. They're mm. hated, uh, but there's several of them who are quite capable, and several of them who are actually pretty good guys. You know, like they're on the good guy side of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, but of course, the show does not have room for all those Freys. Not even close. No one was going to predict that the bunch of Freys would have large roles in the show. So we gotta give them a pass on that. It's pretty understandable. Definitely. What did you think about the Freys? Well, I liked Lothar too. I like the fact that you know they just call him Lothar, but he's lame. So yeah, immediately yeah. in your mind, you're like, "Oh, it's lame Lothar." Yeah, I'm glad they gave um, his name. That was good. So you know who that was. Um, I I love the fact that the show gives the phrase all those fray hats, so they're easy to spot. Yeah, <laughs> it just makes them look like something you should hate. You're like, oh, looks so silly. who would wear that hat? Come on, only a <laughs> oh, only a fray. Oh, look, yeah. there's another one. <laughs> Uh, so there, there, but there were some book similarities in, in that first scene. Um, some differences too. Black Walder, like you said, he's more of a badass. He's over at Seaguard and he has recently in the books, uh, gotten affected the surrender of Seaguard by threatening to hang Patrick Ballister, uh, with some, you know, with obviously great effect. Uh, Ryman is... The one in charge of the siege of River Run, and he's obviously botching up this whole threat mm-hmm. to hang. It shows Edmure. that it, it shows the dichotomy of reputations. Black Walter has the reputation; he will go through with it. So Pat, so right. Jason Malster's like, okay, I got to surrender. This guy really will hang my son. Mm-hmm. But when it's Ryman Frey and and a different situation with with the Blackfish, knowing that Edmure is kind of toast no matter what, he's like, all right, go ahead. Just, just go <laughs> ahead. Calls do your it. call your bluff, you know. Yep. 
Blackfish is, is better at poker than uh, Ryman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he's it, that's very that's what happens in the books. Jamie hits him in the books just like he did at this scene. Uh, you know, everything was everything happens in a slightly different order, but you know, it's all sort of it's what happens. He takes control of the siege. Uh, he has Edmure taken. You know, he takes control of him in the books. Of course, he brings him into his own tent, and um, that's where they have the trebuchet conversation with the threat mm-hmm. um and, and the infiltration tell us about the infiltration yes some people may not be this is this is a lot of book readers are familiar with this but maybe some this got by a few of you so this is worth pointing out yeah in this in the books uh Edmure is in jamie's tent and he's thomas evans has kind of glommed on to jamie so he's there uh he's of course uh from the brotherhood without banners uh and he's left alone with Edmure. Jamie goes out and they have a history in the books, of course. Tom <laughs> saying a, Edmure saying hates a mocking. Singers. Yeah, Edmure <laughs> hates singers because of Tom, who's saying a mocking song about him and his floppy fish. But <laughs> but I think in this scene where they're left alone together, it is very likely that Tom and Edmure have a little conversation. Edmure gets some news about what's going on in the world possibly about Kat and Lady Stoneheart and most definitely about Brotherhood plans because then Edmure is sent into Riverrun to negotiate the surrender, which he does, but then he holds on and allows Blackfish to escape. So there's mm-hmm. all this, you know, the Brotherhood working with to affect this uh, result. And, you know, the Blackfish off with the Brotherhood. There's lots of theories about where he goes after he leaves in the books. Yeah, lots of theories where the Blackfish is. My personal preference is that he stayed in the Riverlands because that's it's, it is his home. And that's where his castle and all this. And he knows the area well. There's not as much reason for it. It's certainly possible that he went north. Some people think maybe he was the hooded man at Winterfell. That's certainly possible. I, I'm not a big fan of that idea based on the evidence, I think, as far as a possibility. I think it's cool. But... I think it's far more likely Blackfish has stayed in the Riverlands, especially if he spoke with Thomas Evans, then it seems more likely that he's hooked up with the Brotherhood. And of course, if he finds out about his niece being Stoneheart, well, that's just, that creates all kinds of interesting situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Potentially interesting anyway, if we get to see them. And that's, so that sets up a lot of fun things. So let us move on from here there's a lot more to come there's definitely we're going to be discussing more of this river run plot line after the credits because without giving any specifics there are quite a few scenes in the trailers for this next episode it looks like there's going to be a lot of river run this next episode but again i won't say specifically but we will go into detail after the credits for now we'll take our mid-episode quick break Come back to talk about the rest of the episode, including Yara, Theon, Arya, and the rest. Okay. Also, before we continue, a shout out to our special Patreon sellsword captains. Patreon sellsword captains are made through our website, History of Westeros. I almost said History of Westeros.com. History of Westeros.com. Click on the Patreon link in the upper right, find the title and pledge amount that's right for you. You get to choose as little as a dollar up to as much as you want. And it comes with benefits like titles like this, getting episodes early, shout outs, things like that. Read it all, read all about it at your leisure. Here are some quick ideas, some people that have supported us for a while and some that are new. Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Weirwood Wanderers to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer and warm women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide, resistance is futile. 
Garion Pike, wielder of Grave Embrace, a Valyrian Steel Axe, captain of the Iron Wave. Iron's kiss is eternal. Kyron Callsbane is captain of the Stone Shields. The torrent breaks upon the stone. Captain Kithic Deadeye of the Scarlet Longbows, pierced by darkness. And our newest sellsword captain, Captain Jael of the Burning Shadows, victory in ashes. I had fun chatting with him about the idea of, we know the raven's teeth use bows of weirwood. Well, the captain of the Burning Shadows, his sellsword company uses bows made from shade of the evening trees. And they wear masks and are covered in tattoos like shadow men. That's a pretty cool mental image, I gotta say. But, back to the TV show, back to Game of Thrones. And let's go to Volantis. I wasn't really sure we'd ever see Volantis again until it was spoiled in the preseason trailers that there were Greyjoy ships there. And at the time... We weren't sure who it was, but we were in another sense because Yara was seen kissing the same woman that we see her kissing in the scene. That was part of the preseason trailers. The tattoo on her eye gave away that this was Volantis. So we actually knew quite a while ago who it would be, but we didn't know the circumstances until a couple episodes ago. So this is basically Victarian and Yara being Victarian's role, sailing east to get the Dragon Queen of course, and it's similar in a lot of ways. Victarion's plan is to steal Daenerys from Euron. And hey, that's what Yara and Theon are trying to do. They're trying to steal Daenerys from Euron too. So yeah, there you go. But here's something kind of cool. We get some hints from the Arya scene, which we'll cover next, that hey, Arya overhears a group of men or a man saying that the Ironborn are in Slaver's Bay. So that seems to be past the point of what we see with Yara and Theon. So we, I guess, get confirmation that they go there, which sets up all kinds of possibilities. Yara and Theon in Slaver's Bay, unlike Victarion, who's going there aggressively, they're going there to try and make an alliance. So that, that sends things in a much different direction, and it creates a lot of possibilities. Think about Tyrion, Varys, Missandei interacting with Theon and Yara and the Ironborn, and maybe Danny will be back by then too. They'll have all these characters coming together kind of at once or near together. And what are they gonna all do together? That's just really hard to predict. What do you what do you think about Yara and Theon, Yarathion? I was calling them <laughs> in the show only episode, coming together. <laughs> And going to Slaver's Bay. Do you have any predictions? Uh, there's also Kinvara to think about. There's just so much happening. Yeah. You know, obvious, the obvious thing is that Danny needs ships. Uh, Yara and Theon have ships. Pretty sure they don't have a thousand ships. Which, <laughs> I certainly uh, don't. <laughs> is the, um, the amount that she's been told she needs. Um, it's interesting that, you know, Euron seems to know exactly how many ships she needs as well. But <laughs> he's busy building a thousand ships, but he's going to have to grow 10,000 trees in order to build his <laughs> thousand ships. This is all, this is, goes into those Euron has a glass candle theories. He was like, she says she needs a thousand ships. That's what we need, a thousand ships. That's right. Okay, come on, let's go. <laughs> so I think it'll be a while before they get a, a thousand ships off the Ironborn, but they have some, mm -hmm. and maybe, uh, well, does Kinvara have any influence to provide ships? Yeah. Um, ships of flame. <laughs> ships made of light and flame shadow probably ships won't work instead of shadow babies <laughs> i would not get on board that ship. do not board the shadow ship <laughs> i will book passage on a more solid ship please and thank you 
But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's a dilemma either way. Euron doesn't have the ships yet. It seems like that would take a while. Asha and Theon don't have enough ships. And where are they going to come from? They just have to come from somewhere. I, I have to assume that there's a, more to go with Euron. More is going to happen with him. He's not just going to be a quick in and out villain. I think mm-hmm. there's going to be more to it. But uh, maybe his whole arc is just to deliver these thousand ships somehow. He's going to be defeated. The ships will be taken over. The Ironborn will have to submit to somebody else because their new king is dead or something. And that somehow that gets them into Danny's hands. But that does, that brings up another question. My prediction has been, and I think a lot of people share this prediction. I think you got, you had a similar idea, maybe not exactly the same, but, and what I'm referring to is what, when will Danny come to Westeros? I guessed end of the season, we see her leave. Like her, the ships are going, she's heading towards Westeros at the end of the season. Other people have suggested she'll be arriving at Westeros at the end of the beginning of the season, just, just, just landing. And that's kind of a good kickoff to what's coming next season. If that's going to happen at the end of the season, you're right. That's just really, really soon. <laughs> like, where are these ships going to come from in two and a half episodes time or whatever? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't have an answer. So that's just... But their plan is Yara and Theon want to take the Iron Islands back. So let's think we could think about the possibility of... Does that apply to the books? Certainly does seem like they're going that direction in the books, doesn't it? Yara's thinking about Torgon, the latecomer, and how the, the King's Moot can be undermined by someone who should have been there or who had a right to participate that didn't get their chance, like Theon, for example. So do you think maybe that's where the, the book is going? Do you think the book is going to have maybe Yara and Theon take back the Iron Islands, maybe, while Euron is off gallivanting at the Arbor and, <laughs> and Old Town? Yeah. <laughs> I think that it will be another plot and distraction. Mm. Very possibly, it seems to be pretty well telegraphed that that's what Yara wants. Don't think in the book Theon is that that's going to be sort of an ending for him because that, I think I've said it before, that is more like what she wants. And it's just another example of someone using Theon Mm. and him kind of not having agency of his own. Uh, I tend to think Theon's ultimate destiny lies elsewhere in the north, hmm. but I do think that they'll head to the Iron Islands before that happens. Okay, yeah, that'll be really interesting to see, and I wonder, this is one of those things where we, it's kind of, I'm kind of 50-50 on how much the, the show can tell us about the books on, on this plot line. I do think there's evidence mm-hmm. that, that Asha is going to try to do something similar. But it's going to clearly play out differently, and she's nowhere near Volantis in the books. She's a captive of Stannis. I mean, that's that's really different. <laughs> it's so different. Yeah, so it's hard to say. And Theon is also a captive of Stannis. So the only thing similar is that they're together. <laughs> right. Okay, so let us move on to Arya. Now, this is in an episode full of things that we kind of saw coming. That a lot of like not very many surprises. This scene has. Pretty damn big surprises in it, uh, although they maybe seemed less surprising after thinking about the scene in retrospect. We've now seen three Stark children stabbed in the gut, and that sweet girl line that the waif gave while in disguise as an old woman is straight from Jaken in the books. Girl, sweet girl, all that. Uh, But as much as maybe we've seen three Stark children stabbed in the gut, I personally am convinced that was not Arya. The second she was stabbed, I immediately started thinking about, well... Is this a fake? Is she, you know, get, did she get some fake blood from the theater troupe or something like that? But 
that idea faded quickly as it was uh, became apparent that no, she was very clearly stabbed. Watching it a few times, Waif jammed that knife in below like her hip line and twisted it around. There just wasn't any bulk there. There was no fake anything there. Uh, you know, there wasn't a cat. Any, yeah, a cat. Yeah, some people think there's a <laughs> cat in there. That's an interesting yeah. theory. That I don't. I watched it again, and there's definitely. Not a cat. No cat, yeah. No, no, no cat under no cat of the canals. <laughs> no cat Sorry. of the of the undershirt. And so here's why I think it wasn't her. A lot of people seem to agree with this. Uh, basically, you start with the premise that it does not make sense for Arya to die, and it doesn't seem that there's a way for her to get healed from this wound. Bravos has a very limited cast of characters, and none of them know jack about healing. There is some magic in this Bravo's plotline, but it isn't that kind of magic, so maybe they're going to introduce that, but that would seem kind of, well, it would be kind of bolted on, using a pun there. <laughs> uh, so here's why, here's why it doesn't make sense for it to be Arya. Mm. First of all, she has different clothes and different hair. Why does Arya change her hair in a way that's irrelevant? It doesn't, it's not like it made her look different in any meaningful way. It's still quite clearly Arya. She's walking around like she has not a care in the world. Tossing money on the table, acting confident and calm, standing on the bridge like that. Last we saw her at the previous episode, she was hiding in the dark holding Needle. And Needle is perhaps the best evidence she didn't have Needle with her in the scene where she gets stabbed by the Waif. She's paranoid about being killed. She knows the Waif is looking for her, yet she's not walking around with her sword? It doesn't make sense. Why would she... Some, I've seen the idea that she's trying to draw the Waif out by baiting her, by not carrying a weapon, but why would that matter? The Waif kicked her ass in training without a weapon. That whole scene where she drops her staff and still beats her down with no problem. Waif's not afraid of Arya at all. Not at all. So I don't think that works. I've seen the theory that Arya was using her right hand instead of her left. That one means a little less to me. At first, I thought it was a good theory, but then I looked back, and honestly, Arya, Maisie Williams, in real life, is right-handed, and there's an article from years ago where she talks about several things she does right-handed in the show because she just isn't ambidextrous. Even though Arya is supposed to be left-handed, she just can't pull it off. So that argument maybe doesn't hold a lot of water, but I still think there's a ton of evidence that it works, and... One uh, one concern people had is the face. It's like, well, where do they get Arya? Where do they get a fake Arya's face? Arya's not dead. Don't need one. We've already seen a fake Arya face in season five. Remember when the fake Jaken drinks poison because he says a life is owed, and Arya, you know, starts crying and screaming, and then they pull a million faces in succession off of fake Jaken's face. One of those faces was Arya's. So they've already got that. They've already got that. That works. And listener uh, and Patreon supporter Alicia the Everlasting notes that there's a bit of a musical similarity in the bridge scene where Arya or fake Arya is stabbed compared to the uh, some other scenes with Jacob. Now, I didn't verify that personally. That would take a lot of research, but it's an interesting thing to consider. So that's my long spiel about what I think is up with Arya. I've actually got some more to say, but Lady Gwen, you sh- you, we need to let you weigh in and say what you think about this. Well, I really want it to be this complex (laughs) i'm kind of i agree there's a lot of things pointing that way and to me especially the absence of needle and that stood out to me in this scene like where the hell's the sword and and then when you think about it where she was hiding and scared in the last uh in the last episode it's part of her identity too it's like her it's like she's recaptured her identity and then she just immediately stepped aside that's kind of odd so she went and gutted out of hiding and then she 
hit it again yeah, so that she could yeah. walk around. Yeah. It's so weird. I did that. That was pretty compelling. But you know, and and I'm really hoping that it's this kind of complexity because I I want to have that in the show, but I'm kind of on the fence as to whether they do things this complex or not. Yeah. So. I'm kind of playing a wait and see, but in and to play in the meantime to play a devil's advocate, I uh, wondered if it is really Arya. Yeah. How on earth is she gonna find help or heal or? And the only thing I come up with is that she would go find the the players because it, there's really no one else that she knows in Bravos yeah. outside of the House of Black and White. So, you know, that's kind of a, a slim like outside chance of if it's just the most simple explanation, but. Right and then uh the other yeah the the needle thing is pretty big and the so the the explanation that's required here for if that is jake and well why why is that jake <laughs> and well i don't know the some of it could be the inner workings of the faceless men and how they do business with with each other my one idea i have is that well the waif isn't a full faceless man either. It doesn't seem like. She's clearly in training because she defers to Jaqen multiple times. In the book, it seems like she's his equal, but in the, sh- the equal to the kindly man anyway. And But here, because in the book, Jaqen, the real Jaqen seems to be at Old Town. But in this case, the waif seems to be, you know, farther along than Arya by a good deal, but still not a full faceless man. So if you look at it from the faceless men's point of view... The waif is a bigger failure than Arya by far. She's the one that has abandoned her training. She's made, she's went against Jaqen's orders and is doing something that will make Arya suffer rather than killing her quickly. She used, she referred to herself as I and me and has absolutely expressed hatred for Arya in numerous ways, which faceless men are not supposed to have personal hatred towards people, especially people that they want to kill. They're supposed to set that aside. And if she, so she's longer, farther along in the process of training. If she say, a novice, which is one step above acolyte, then her failure is a bigger failure. And if and if admittance to the faceless men is kind of a sponsorship thing, like I'm bringing this person in, I think this person is, you know, like he says, it's a shame. Girl had many talents. So this could reflect on him. He's the one that tried to bring not just the waif, but Arya into the faceless men, and they both failed. That, to me, is a good enough reason for him to sacrifice his own life as a failure to their cause. I mean, this is a death cult, after all. It's, it seems weird for people to throw their lives away, but it's already been done. We've already, Just like I said earlier, there was the fake Jaqen that killed himself, and Arya thought it was really him. Well, that was a real person that killed himself, because Arya didn't kill the, the insurance salesman. So we've already seen this kind of thing. We've already seen a faceless man kind of give up their own life because the the God of death is owed this life. So it's one thing. It's kind of weird, but it is consistent. It's consistently weird. (laughs) So anyway, uh, all that was a long way to to describe something that we're going to know one way or another probably next week. So it's right, probably going to be exactly. all explained. But I think it's pretty pretty cool to think about in the meantime. And it, it may have implications for the books. Because, again, how is Arya going to get away from the Faceless Man in the books? Is she going to have a falling out with them? Or is she going to be sent on a mission? Is she going to be fully accepted and then go on a mission that takes her back to Westeros? That is still really up in the air. Which way do you lean on that? Um, I think that she's having a falling out and i actually tend to think the end of the mercy chapter pretty much hints that wh- mm, where she's heading yeah um there, there's some language at the end of that chapter that 
seems you know she's she's definitely done with what she was doing yeah so whether that it was just that chapter or that episode with the faceless man and she's gone on to something else or whether she's done done i guess remains to be seen i did just have a sometimes i sit here and i think uh, <laughs> on the spot let sure. me just throw something out there if it wasn't aria but it wasn't maybe it wasn't taken could aria have made uh, a plant you know if she does, is there any indication that she could have the skill mm. to sort of glamour or, you know, have somebody pose as herself? Somebody that she might want to, you know, use as bait and get rid of, like, mm. maybe that actress that she... Um, <laughs> so, half-formed kind of crackpot there. Yeah. Uh, and apparently there was someone on Twitter named Eric who... This came from your Twitter, I think. Yes. He was wondering why the people of Bravos were so disgusted. You know, they were just all looking at her with kind there of. There was no disgust. pity at all. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, no one was going to help. No one's reaching out to help hmm, her. No so, one. Huh? Uh, you know, <laughs> could it, they? Could they be? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you slipped that in. <laughs> I wondered if they're seeing something different than what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, it's the the only explanation I could come up with, or they're just you know faceless men business and they just you know hands off that. Mm. So okay, well I think that's a good enough explanation on Arya for now. That is the final scene of the episode that we need to discuss. So let us do. We've got a couple of questions that we can handle. Then we'll give our episode ratings and our credits and move on to trailer discussion. All right, so a lot of people asked us about Arya and Jaken and who that is, so we're not going to give credit to any particular person for asking that question. Quite a few of you wrote in on that, so good on you. We certainly, I think we, we hopefully we gave it the treatment you thought it deserved. Uh, we have a question here from uh, Sarvesh Chalvanambi. Uh, is Jamie wearing Tywin's armor? Is this armor inherited? Uh, you think so, Lady Gwyn? I didn't actually take a look at that. Well, I did. I, I went and looked at the pictures. Um, it is identical to Tywin's oh, armor. Nice. Um, so, you know, he, he is, or at least, you know, whether it's actually Tywin's armor or it's just symbolizing his change from Kingsguard armor because he, we saw him strip that off in the last episode uh, into the Lannister mm. armor. So, yes. you know, the, all the Lannister soldiers do wear that armor. It's just that Tywin's was a little fancier than everybody else's. And that's, that's how Jamie's is as well. Uh, he's got the... Uh, the lion's heads on the shoulder and, you know, the Lannister crest okay, here. Okay, so right on. It definitely appears to be. That's yeah. good. Okay, uh, next question. I uh, Is this also, also from Sarvesh or do we not have... Same Okay, person, so the question yes. is, with Ironborn, Tyrion, eunuchs, Relorists, and Dothraki, could the Danny Arby be more hated than White Walkers? Well, I think maybe not more hated than White Walkers. Depends on who you're talking to, but yes, in general. I've, this is something I've been saying for a while, that I think that the army, other than the Unsullied... Every, almost everything Danny's bringing over is a destructive element, something that's going to be hard to handle, something that could easily get out of control, something that will not necessarily mix well with the Westerosi people at large. And that's kind of what I was saying as well with regards to what's going on with the Brotherhood, that they're, you know, if they're showing us maybe a foreshadowing of what's to come when we're lorists mix with Faith Militant, and that will be not good. That will be just murder, murder, death, kill. Mm. Yeah, so that's I think that's very true, and it could and it's a good to point out that even with with Ironborn added into that, it's just getting worse. You know, uh, the Unsullied people will look down on the Unsullied because they're slave soldiers and they're eunuchs, 
but no one's going to be able to fault them for their behavior. But everyone else, you know, <laughs> the Ironborn, I mean, the Dothraki, you got worshippers of the fanatics of the Red God. I mean, yeah, that is not that is not a recipe for peace by any means. Mm-mm. She's going to have to really, and maybe that's why they're making Danny out to be such a dominating figure, because maybe that's one of the only things that will be able to explain how she keeps all everybody in line. They're there. They're afraid of her. That's, she's just that, you know, powerful, that much of a living goddess that they actually listen to her and it gets the Dothraki to behave properly. I don't know. We'll see if that's what they do. That's a, that's a ways away, I think. I don't know that we'll be, we, I don't think we'll be addressing that this season, uh, because I don't think Danny will be in Westeros yet. But it's something that's on the horizon as much as her ships are. So, yeah, that's a very cool thing to think about and a very, very dangerous potential there. Okay, here's another good question, or good comment, rather, from Emily Roski. Doesn't seem John is suffering many ill effects from death. No lost memories that we can see, etc. That's a really good point. It's something we talked about a while back. And uh, it doesn't seem to have been carried forward at all at the time of john's death we wondered what would happen to him whether how would it impact him at first it was certainly affecting him he wanted to leave the night's watch all this that was that was something to do with it but going forward i don't see any signs of of any kind of wear and tear what about you lady green have you noticed anything that's maybe different about him no he just seems no he seems like the same old broody (laughs) john snow (laughs) his um as brienne noticed um but that's not really that different from how he was before so (laughs) Um, he doesn't seem that different. Yeah, I got to so, agree with you there. Yeah. So maybe we'll see some more differences later. Um, but I guess not. It doesn't look like, it seems like if they were going to do that, it would have already, we've already, would have already seen some of it. So that's something that I expect to be different in the books. I guess you do as well. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see on that. We'll, we'll find out maybe as soon as next week on some of these show things. But on the book, yeah, I guess we'll be waiting longer than a week for the winter. winter. <laughs> right. So. Let's talk about some things overall. We talked about the themes. We talked about how many great shots were in this episode. And those great shots aren't something you can really break down. There's not there's nothing to analyze about the awesome Mormont Castle other than to say, hey, that was awesome. And, and Lady Liana being yeah. such a badass kid, same thing. What can you say other than that was great? You know, uh, that's it. It's a couple of sentences of praise and then you move on. So... We've been maybe a little more critical of the show in this episode than usual, but that's partly why. That's partly why, because the great, the greatest moments on this show, on this episode, a lot of them were very visual or just great acting. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, there's, there's nothing to tie to the books when it's those things. So that said, uh, what would you give this episode rating wise? I, I'll start this time because I know that I think I made you go first last time. So I'll go first this time. I'm going to give it a 7.5. It's, it's probably the lowest rating I've given this season. Partly, I wasn't disappointed with too many things. But again, I just, it just, there weren't any surprises except for the Arya stuff. And it's not bad when there aren't surprises. But compared to the rest of the ep- uh, season, there's been so many awesome surprises, so many great moments. That this episode didn't have as many of those. So that takes it down a notch. What do you think? Same, actually. 7.5. I, I thought about this. Um, watched it with a show-only watcher who rated it a 5. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's low. Um, That's low. But, I, yeah, I know. That was a little harsh. But I, I, I give it more credit than that for, you know, <laughs> for some good moments and, you know, some really great things. The visual things, the show does well. So they they did well what they always do well the the visual, the settings, the Acting. costuming, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and you know really. you take away for some of the some of the places where the storytelling got a little 
felt a little flat or yeah. felt a little confusing. So I think we prefer bad costumes to to, uh, to, to trade bad co good costumes for bad and to have more things from the book. But it is better than you know. It is it does make up for some things. Absolutely, it's it's great. Yeah. You know, it does it helps a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and this episode is particularly in that sense. As I said at the beginning, there were so many expectations for this episode once we saw where it was going that that is hard not to bank on those expectations even if you know in your heart in your mind that there's going to be major differences it this is things that we've had in our hearts for 10 years so you can't just set that aside mm -hmm. okay so let's let's do our credits and then we'll come back for trailer discussion we got a as, as le though we have maybe less to say about this episode than usual we have maybe more to say about what's coming so if you don't want to be spoiled Stick with us with your credits, and then we'll say goodbye after that. Otherwise, stick with us until the end, and we've got some cool stuff for you. So, thanks to the ever-awesome Cash Craig, First Lord, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers, and the Black People, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West, Lord Stormsville, ah, Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, and Warden of the East, Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge, the Lord Borealis, the Delight of the North, and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Also Rory the Rogue, Archer Extraordinaire, and King Beyond the Wall. He would have taken out those peasants even faster, but he's not that kind of guy. So, good for us. The Small Council is made up of Lord James Inkley, the Scholar Knight and Master of Whispers. Grandmaster Saria of the Barrows is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Point. Rosie the Clever is Master of Ships. I'm sorry, Lord Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws, and Lord James Tuttle is Master of Ships. Lady Dyrlis of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of Desert Rose. Jeffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake. Lord Greybay is of the Queen City. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of the Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the Norse Hammer, Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lord Mark Joseph is the Snow in Winterfell. And we hear some rumors that, this, that the Northerners in Winterfell are trying to hatch a dragon. Interesting, interesting story there. We'll have, to, we'll have to see how that goes. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye and Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is the leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lady Cachon Volant is of Swine Harbor. And Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete, Everblades. We also have King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear, leads our History of Westeros Kingsguard. And last but certainly not least, our History of Westeros Night's Watch, led by Lord Commander George the Golden. First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield, and introducing Dolores Ronick Cantrell, First Steward, wielder of the Valyrian Spoon. For the night is dark and full of turnips. It sure is. And thanks to the History of Westeros Bards, responsible for our various theme songs and music, Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal. And thanks to Lady Gwyn for joining me again. It's been a busy season, so I really appreciate you coming to join me every week and help me talk through all this. Uh, I'm, and I'm sure that everyone else is thankful as well. Tell everyone where to find you again. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, we love doing this and uh, 
Wouldn't have it any other way. You can find us at RadioWesteros.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and oh, wherever we're on Tumblr. Wherever on Radio YouTube. Westeros appears. YouTube. <laughs> Google Radio Westeros, you'll find us in loads of places. But yeah. do come on by. Give us a chance if you haven't listened to us. Definitely. I've been, I occasionally re-listen to some older episodes when they become relevant. And if you guys look at their catalog, you'll see, ooh, there's a lot of stuff relevant to stuff happening this season. Yeah. Littlefinger being the most recent pair of episodes you guys did. That's really, really good stuff. Some really mm-hmm. deep breakdowns of Littlefinger. Really good stuff. Okay. And Littlefinger is a really hard topic, so <laughs> hats yeah. off to you guys for tackling that one. I'm glad someone did because I didn't, I didn't want to. After doing Varus, I was like, when you guys said you're doing Littlefinger, I thought about how hard it was to do Varus. I was like, yep, you guys right, are for those- it. Non-point of view characters are really... Yeah, those the yeah. schemer point of view. The ones who are more intelligent than like us real... Yeah, jeez. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I, no, I wasn't surprised that it turned into two episodes for you guys. <laughs> because right. Our virus episode was two, two episodes as well. Yeah. Okay. So if you don't want to be spoiled, adios, folks. We'll see you next time. We're going to take a quick ad break and come back to discuss the trailers. And we'll see you all next time. Valor Morgulis, thanks for joining us. Okay, yeah, the credits really, really focused a lot on just a few things, less less scattered about various plot lines because the way things are going to wrap up at the end of the season, what it appears we'll see is a lot of different things in this next episode, but more of it focused on a few different plot lines. The northern plot line seems to be really coming to a head with episode nine, which is called Battle of the Bastards. That really gives away what's happening there, but we kind (laughs) of knew that anyway. I mean, past seasons already gave that away too. Every episode nine is like the big moment. There's a Blackwater, Battle at the Wall. You know, Hard Home was episode eight to be fair, but there's just the the big battles are quite often episode nine. The most most money gets spent on episode nines overall. So we, we saw that coming a long way away and it's confirmed now. I guess it was actually confirmed a while ago. But we're confirming it again. Episode 10 is called The Winds of Winter. So that sounds like there'll be some maybe whatever other White Walker stuff there is to wrap up. It'll be happening then. Yeah, I don't suspect we'll see any White Walker stuff this next episode. I guess we'll see some brand, maybe like a a bit of an epilogue type situation, setting up whatever's going to come next season. Maybe something, maybe something big happens at the wall. I'm not sure. Hard to say, but tell us what's in the credits, the description, rather, for episode eight, which is entitled No One, which surely tells us that Arya's plotline is getting moving forward. Yes, that seems to indicate something big for her. Uh, the description is, while Jamie weighs his options, Cersei answers a request. Tyrion's plans bear fruit. Arya faces a new test. <laughs> Not dying from a gut <laughs> wound or... who knows (laughs) so we know they can be tricky with these things yeah um... so using that as a segue what we know from the trailer of this next episode is we see the waif turning her head to the left looking really surprised so maybe she sees a living aria or something or someone coming to kill jake and someone coming to take her out i don't know but something that surprises her and we see a scene that we've been seeing since the preseason trailers Arya jumping off of the top of the building down to some stairs, or what appears to be Arya anyway, wearing different clothes than both the Arya in this last episode, because it might not be Arya, and different than the Arya seen in episode six, the real Arya, uh, if you're asking me anyway. So something's happening there, and uh, but it's pretty much 
not much more to say about that now. We'll just have to wait and see. It's just going to have... All, all we can say is that it looks like it's going to come to a head next episode. Then we have just a quick shot of Sandor swinging his axe. The dog getting back into things. And, um, yeah. Yeah, oh, you've got a little note on this, don't you? <laughs> yes. Well, when we were watching uh, the episode... Um... Ray says to Sander, I've never seen a man swing an axe like that. And I said to Yoke Boy, uh, what do you want to bet? We we see him swinging that axe at someone's head before too long. <laughs> a couple people will be the last thing they've ever seen. Uh, that was the last time, the last thing I ever saw was a man swinging an axe like that. <laughs> Pretty much. So, and then of course, yeah, then he grabbed it when at the end of the episode, you see yeah. him grab the axe and storm off. So. <laughs> Don't Watch out. Just, yeah. <laughs> you do not want an angry hound with an axe coming after you. Oh, I free I froze <laughs> that one frame and he's angry. He's, yeah, he's he's very angry pissed. face. <laughs> <laughs> All that hate. I mean, that's what kept him alive is hate. Now he's got a yeah. place to, to put it, you know, right? And an axe in someone's face is where he's going to put it. Yes. Now, the uh, the rest of the trailer, there's a lot, a lot of river run shots. And I'm going to put them in the... They're not in this order in the trailer, but I think this is the proper order that they're going to happen in the episode. First of all, we see Brienne and Podrick arriving at the camp. We see them showing up at the Riverlands camp in daylight. So this is an important thing that we're using to figure out the order of things. There's several scenes in daylight, several at night. The daylight scene seems to be happening first, as evidenced by this one, Brienne arriving at the camp. We also see someone grabbing Podrick from behind in a in like a headlock, and it looks maybe something bad is happening. But that's almost certainly Braun. We we guessed that back in the preseason trailers, and it really looks like it from his arm and from what he's wearing. So that seems like just a little pranky kind of thing. Nothing nothing to get alarmed about. Then we see Brienne talking to, handing a letter to the Blackfish, and the Blackfish looks a little concerned because he sees like he's getting an order from someone above him. And that's also in daylight. But then we see Brienne speak to Jamie also in daylight. And he's being a little bit, she's threatening him a bit saying, you know, I have to, you know, if this doesn't go well, then I'm going to have to fight you. So did you have some thoughts on this? Well, I, you know, I was a little confused. And you said they were, they were sort of presented all out of order. I think it's hard to imagine Jamie letting her through the siege lines to deliver a message to the Blackfish from Sansa, which we know is her sorry, it's her secret mission. Yeah. So, you know, I I wondered, is she taking on the Edmure role? Uh, is is she going to somehow get in there and Jamie's going to entrust her to go speak to the Blackfish and deliver his final sort of threat? Mm-hmm. I can't imagine how else she's going to get up to the castle. She's got to have Jamie's permission and to get there and I'm going to guess that what she says is something along the lines of, hey, you know, I might be to get him out of there. I might be, they want to go, you know, Sansa wants them to come north. And that might be good enough for Jamie. He's like, well, if you're going to get them out of there and take them north, that's fine with me. That gets them out of here. That's, you know, if they go up north, well, that's not my problem. Yeah, Um, that could be. That would be in keeping with kind of Jamie's book arc. Yeah. Actually. And he he wants it to be done quickly. That's for sure. Anything to just get this over with quickly. Um, On the other hand, I just wondered, you know, there's there's this sort of semi-threatening tone that you mentioned. So in the absence of Lady Stoneheart again, there there could be, you know, some way that because they know something that's coming that we don't, they might have to create some sort of tension between Brienne and Jamie. So I wondered if that there's something going on here that's meant to get us somewhere. 
down the line yeah, that we're not really yeah. sure about yet. And there's also this moment of, of of Jamie talking to somebody saying, if I have to kill every Tully to get back to Cersei, I'll do that. Pretty sure he's talking to Edmure there, which is straight, you know, straight from the book, threatening Edmure to get mm-hmm. him to force Black Vistus run to the castle. So I think that's what's going to, I think that's the deal there. We also see Brienne and Podrick with Blackfish at night. And they appear to be getting into a ship. And they both, like, Blackfish, like, pulls his sword out. But it's not in any kind of threatening way. He's not attacking Brienne. He's, like, you know, he's not facing her. He's kind of facing away from her and pulling his sword mm-hmm. out. Like, okay, well, we're leaving. I don't know. I'm not sure what's happening there. But I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. It's Brienne, instead of Blackfish swimming away, they're lowering the gate just high enough for him to squeeze under and swim away. Brienne and Podrick are going to take him and sneak off by themselves and maybe go back north that way. I'm not gonna, I have no idea what's going to happen to all the men inside River Run, but I guess it's going to be similar to the to what happens in the books where they're kind of pardoned and let go with Edmure's mm-hmm. orders, etc. Something yeah. like that. So, and then we see confirmation of this. Another shot of Brienne kind of looking back upstream, as you can see Podrick in, inside a small rowboat with her. And you can't see Blackfish, but presumably he's, he's just behind them. And she's kind of looking furtively behind her like she's worried about being seen. So I think I think that they kind of gave it all away there. But it's also pretty much what we expected. So it's, it's kind of a spoiler, but kind of isn't. Because it's pretty much very similar to what's happening in the books with some small details. Like the large detail of missing Lodi Starnhart. But anyway, <laughs> everything else is pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. We also see finally what is almost certainly the last scene of this is Jamie leading his army away from River Run at night, maybe right after Blackfish has escaped and the castle is surrendered and he's looking pissed and, and Blackwilder is staring at him looking pissed <laughs> and Bronn is there behind them. Also, you can barely see him, but that there goes a theory that I entertained briefly from our friend Cassius Grant, who suggested maybe Jamie will give River Run to Bronn, which would be really weird from a book point of view, but wouldn't be that weird for the show to do it. But if Jamie, if Bronn's seen riding away with Jamie, then that kills that idea right out. So we also have, uh, it also goes against the, something we see in the preseason trailers, which is we see another shot of Lord Walder at some point this year, probably this next episode, celebrating. He's, he, he's like standing up, toasting, and you see a whole room full of Freys and Lannisters because they have that distinctive Lannister armor and they're all cheering and happy. And so I don't suppose Walder would be cheering if Jamie gave River Run to somebody else. So I guess uh, what we're seeing there is a celebration of them taking River Run. And who knows where that's going to go from there. We also have, a t- we've been told by Arya that she's in some scenes that we don't necessarily know she's in. The preseason trailers have Arya in more things than we may have seen because maybe she's in disguise. So, ha. That opens up all kinds of possibilities. We also see Tyrion very briefly looking up. He kind of seems to be looking up at the chandelier, but he's probably not just looking at the chandelier to check it out. Best guess, something is making sounds above. Probably a dragon, right? Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Mm. I think. Um, do you think it's Danny returning or one of the one of the Viserion Rhaegal getting out? Maybe. Uh, yeah, that was my bet. I mean, after because they. They had that scene at the beginning, so it, nothing nothing has come of it. So I, I assume something has to come of it sooner or later. So yeah, um, mm. and, and then I remember we saw some other scenes that appeared to be the throne room windows breaking in Marine. Hmm. So in some trailer. So um, yeah, 
Dragons is my bet in the, the Rhaegal. Yeah. There's also that shot from the preseason trailers that showed like some sort of explosion type thing in a period, yeah. what appeared to be like their council room or the throne room there yep. at Marine. So that could be related to this. So the big question is, how do the dragons get out? If it's not Danny, if it's not Drogon returning, then what's going on? The Sons of the Harpy, is that what they do? Do they push things out? But, but from the trailer description, it sounds like it says Tyrion, you know, starts to see some results on his plan. So if that's, it sounds like the opposite if the dragons have gotten loose by someone else's hand. Mm. But on the other hand, maybe Tyrion is the responsible himself. You know, he certainly is the one that knows some things about dragons. Yeah. We also have yet to see Davos finding evidence of Shireen. We talked about this earlier in the episode, but there is that shot from the preseason trailers of him standing out in the icy landscape looking down at a pile of logs. At the beginning, we thought that maybe had something to do with John, back in early part of the season. But now that's clearly not the case. So we're back to thinking it has something to do with Shireen. So that's got to be coming soon. Probably next episode. If the Battle of the Bastards is episode nine, you wouldn't think it happens after that. You would think it happens. They're following the same path Stannis took to get to Winterfell. Yeah. And that would be this next camp. So I think that's happening next episode. And yeah, what's going to happen? Maybe Melisandre should be a worry of the week. <laughs> or Davos, because yeah. Davos could lose that conflict, you know. Mm-hmm. And you wonder what Davos's future role will be. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then we also have the mountain. This is a big moment. Uh, to too bad Yoke Boy's not in this review because we would have gotten to geek out on. Yes, we're finally getting it. We finally get it. I finally. choose violence. We get Cersei. Yes. It's seven of them, too. It's seven faith militant led by Lancel come and say, have your man step aside or there will be violence. Cersei, kind of in a trembly but fierce voice with Kyber standing beside her, says, I choose violence. And then we even see like a, sh- a quick shot of the mountain, like basically killing some faith militant with his hand over his, his, over his face, like pulling his head backwards or something like that. It looks pretty brutal. And then we see a shot of Cersei, Kyburn, and the mountain strolling into the throne room, which they would not be doing uh, if they were expected at the Sept for a trial by combat or what have you. So, and the big clue there is that this happens after this confrontation with Lancel. The mountain's armor has some dents in it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's happening. That is... Yes. Well, Yoke Boy will be here next week. Yeah, we'll be able to geek out over the (laughs) the end result of that. So that'll be fun. And I guess so. I guess that's it for Lancel. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) he's first place, first prize for worry. Yeah. (laughs) So that's that takes us to our worry of the week, which we'll close out this episode with. So Lancel, I'm not just worried about him. I just think that's it. He's toast. He's he's dead meat. Next episode. Yeah, I don't think he's gonna run away. You know, maybe he will. Which, by extension. See you later, Kevin, I guess. <laughs> mm. so if Cersei basically is responsible for Kevin's death and Kevin's, I mean, Lancel's death and Kevin already has these huge problems with Cersei and hates her, this won't help. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we have that preseason trailer shot of the little birds stabbing someone. So that, that brings up two questions. Not just who is it? Probably Kevin, but it could be Pycelle. How does Kyburn get these little kids to start killing people? Yeah, he's giving them candy, and all of a sudden he's like, "Okay, well, even all I want, he because he even says all I need from you are whispers, what and murders right. apparently, <laughs> murder the hand of the yeah. king or the grand maester <laughs> or <go>. both." <laughs> like, damn. <laughs> so I wonder how he's going to get them to do uh, that. Like, this is some really good candy. <laughs> yeah, I, I would. I wouldn't be surprised if we get that in episode ten. 
you know, if Lancel dies in the next episode, and then we probably kind of skip that stuff because of the, you know, episode nine will probably be mainly all in the, the North, battle, the yeah, big battle. 100%. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if very much like Dance with Dragons, you know, that episode ten, it, it maybe not ends with that, but it that's sort of the wrap up of that mm. arc. So much for Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. So. Also, I think I have a new worry of the week, and that's one one. Um, I don't think yes. he's gonna die next episode as he wouldn't die before the battle i don't think i mean it's possible but i expect that and here's the reason why there's no specific reason why one one is in big trouble in the battle like the boltons are really good against giants you know but it's just that it's expensive to shoot that giant to shoot ian white in giant costume and they have to do green screen stuff and it's really you know it's expensive and they kill off the dire wolves because of them being expensive. And, you know, the budget keeps getting bigger. They're going to have to do more White Walkers as the show goes forward. More dragons. So the giant... Eh, yeah, I don't know. I think he might be... He might be done. One, one, done, done. I hope not, but that's... Yeah. That's where the evidence... That's what the evidence is suggesting to me at this point. Right. Any other suggestions for people that you think or you're worried about? No, not yeah. really. I mean, my... Who's... <laughs> Joking that that guy in the trailer, I think he's <laughs> yeah, the guy the, at the end of the trailer. The militant guy, yeah. He, he's but as I, dead as I don't he's think, deader than Lancel. Yeah. <laughs> no no great <laughs> mysteries there, so um no. Yeah. I think everyone else will be sticking around. I guess we should be worried about some brotherhood without banners getting access to the face, but I, I wouldn't call that a worry. <laughs> More of a yeah. hell yeah, get them those scumbags killing the helpless right, peasants. Right. Killing Ian McShane, those bastards. Yeah, oh, that was yeah. awful. Making that, him yeah. hang like that, mm, jerk. That was great makeup. Yeah, it was. It was. He looked. Um, he looked quite, quite they... dead and suffocated, yeah. <laughs> just yes. like they did with uh, yeah. Ollie. They, they've done a good job of hangings this season. <laughs> yeah. the, the hanging team. The hangings, The hanging team. Yeah. Okay, so armored and plot will be our final little segment. I think Olena's back off the list. I was really worried about her last episode, but I do think she's going to leave King's Landing, and I don't think the High Sparrow... There's no reason for her to to him to push it so far that he kills her, because he's gotten what he wanted. She's going to leave, apparently. And having her killed after what he said to Marjorie is going to make it really obvious that it's him, or that his people. And he doesn't need to mm. stir the pot that much. He wants power, and if he's killing members of the royal family just you know, behind the scenes and making it obvious. Yeah, I don't know if he's willing to go that far. Maybe he will. But I'm guessing no. I'm going to guess no. So I'm going to take Olena off that list. Even possibility that she has a role to play from where she's going. In Feast for Crows, we know that Euron is attacking Old Town in that area, uh, menacing shipping and all that. And we hear more about that in Dance and in Beyond in some of the spoiler chapters. May and we know that it's Garland and Willis are in charge of leading that effort to fight back against the Ironborn. So maybe we've already seen Olena lead troops at King's Landing because Mace is inept. And maybe so maybe we'll hear of Olena leading the charge. Maybe we'll even get a scene or two of her, you know, making decisions. Something like that. It's possible. Do you have any, you have any thoughts on that? Uh, do you still think, are you still worried about Olena? Uh, no, I think you're right. I think, yeah, right on. She's she's going to exit. There's no motivation, I don't think, for him to imprison or kill her in being the High Sparrow because he's got what he wanted. She's off the board. So. You know what? I'll, I got to take Loras off the board, too, because I don't see the trial by combat happening in any way we thought was going to happen. Mm. And it doesn't seem to be Loras is going to be their champion at all. I don't see that yeah. either. And yeah. 
And so I think maybe he's just still, I mean, he's still rotting in prison. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the same thing. It's the High Sparrow I, doesn't want to kill him because then that, you know, then it's like a a blood debt kind of thing. The Tyrells, he's really made an enemy of the Tyrells. Right now, yeah. he's kind of got some control over them. But if he starts killing them, then, then they're just going to... Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? I, I think he saw the danger of the Tyrell army. And that's why he wants Olena off the board. Yeah, because now Mace will be in charge of it. (laughs) (laughs) And he's not worried about that. (laughs) 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 I mean, that's that would suit him well if it's King Tommen with Pycelle and you know no Jamie in 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 charge. Maybe get rid of Cersei. Once he takes, if he can take out Cersei, then he's got all the like dangerous players are out of the way in in favor of people that he can manipulate his plan is almost complete mace and tommen (laughs) yeah just all these easy the people that he can easily manipulate or just overbear or just confuse or trick or just outthink. yeah so he's it's pretty clever he's getting rid of all the people that are a threat to him and he's doing it really effectively (laughs) but surely it won't continue forever i don't suspect the high sparrow will last this whole season Right. But he's not going to... Uh, if he dies, I expect episode 10, not next episode. But we'll see. I could be wrong. So, everybody, that's it for today. Thanks again, Lady Gwen. Really appreciate you coming out and chatting, just uh, taking up the Radio Westeros team, uh, doing double duty there. <laughs> you are very welcome. All <laughs> right. So we'll see everybody next time. Only three episodes left. We're excited for the conclusion. It should be a lot of fun. And it should be a lot of fun, not just watching it, but discussing it with everybody, with you guys. So send us your emails, your tweets, your Facebook messages, whatever is your preferred method. And we will include the best bits in the next episode, as well as those going forward. So, Valar Morgulis, Valar Reredus, Valar, see you next time. Thanks again, everybody. <laughs>